Professional wrestling, like real life, is full of surprises. Hi everyone, it's Freddie Prinze Jr. And it's no surprise I can talk wrestling all day, any day. Kind of like how State Farm agents can talk insurance and help you choose the right coverage. When it comes to important insurance decisions, let State Farm support you with the coverage you need backed with 24-7 support. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The person in charge of that movie made a lot of mistakes. American Me. Yeah. Edward James almost. Yeah. Okay. A lot of mistakes. Do you know him? He'll admit it. What, do you know him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, okay. Uh, I, I saved his life, really, and he won't admit that either. Welcome to More Than a Movie, American Me. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. Today's our last episode of this season. We've been learning about this movie in pieces. From the actors who were on set, to the filmmakers behind the scenes, to the gang members who gave us the inside scoop on the murders associated with the movie. It's time to take everything we've learned in our last six months of digging, in our hours and hours of interviews and wiki holes and YouTube videos with 200 views to try to put together some sort of complete picture. Who is the real Edward James Olmos? Why did he make American Me? Who actually got killed because of this movie? And most importantly, was it all worth it? Let's start where we always start on this podcast. The one big interview. The guy we wanted to talk to, but didn't want to talk to us. By now, you should know who I'm talking about. Mr. Edward James Olmos. None of this happens without him. Not the good stuff like a Latino director getting a major movie made 30 years ago and 
Maybe none of the bad stuff. More on that later. But first, that voice you heard at the top, that's Danny Trejo. He's probably the second most important person in this story. He wouldn't talk to us either. Maybe it's because we found out that a lot of what he wrote in his 2019 memoir might have been embellished, misremembered, or just plain wrong. But we probably wouldn't have done this podcast were it not for Trejo and his attempts to sell his memoir off the back of American Me stories, like the one about when almost showed up to a Jewish deli method acting in prison blues, or when a Mexican mafia leader supposedly called him from prison to warn him not to act in the movie. From what we've heard, those stories probably didn't happen. Or if they did, they happened very differently than how Trejo told them. But maybe he has an explanation for the discrepancies, like how Joe Morgan managed to call him from the Pelican Bay Special Housing Unit where he was in solitary confinement for 22.5 hours a day with more or less zero access to the outside world. If he calls us back, we'll do another episode. Phone lines are open, Danny. But Trejo had a lot to say about Edward James almost while he was promoting his book. He's still pretty mad about the whole thing. Okay, the leader of the Mexican Mafia was never raped. Hey, at least that's one thing we agree on. But enough about Danny Trejo. After all, whether you believe his story or not, he wasn't the guy who made American Me, and what transpired after the release of that movie probably plays out the exact same way no matter what Trejo's involvement may have been. Throughout this season, I've been trying to get inside the head of one Edward James Olmos, particularly the Olmos of the early 1990s. Obviously, understanding the director of American Me would help us understand the movie itself. But could it also help us understand the version of America that the movie was made in? And, by extension, explain why Edward James Olmos would make such a dangerous piece of art in the first place. Remember, this isn't Admiral Adama. This is Edward James Olmos circa 1991, the rising Hollywood star, the recent Academy Award nominee, the household name from five seasons on Miami Vice but also a family man with kids at home, an active community leader with a vision, a spokesperson, if you will. One clue into Edward James Olmos' psyche might lie in a story that we heard about him early in our process. It's the kind of story you'd think was made up or that's being taken out of context, if not for the fact that it's right on his website. It's about the 1992 civil rights uprising in Los Angeles, sometimes better known as the L.A. Riots. The culmination of a decade of Reaganomics and militarizing police forces reaching a fever pitch. An event, looking back, that shows us Rodney King was just the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, in our review, uh, we find that uh, the officers uh, struck him with batons uh, between 53 and 56 times. I was scared. I was scared. I was scared for my life. The inaction of the 17 officers may now be investigated by the U.S. Attorney's Office for possible civil rights violations. That's right. 17 officers were involved. Four took turns beating up Rodney King while the others just looked on. All were caught on tape, and the tape was broadcast by every major news outlet. This was 30 years ago when not everybody owned a camcorder. In fact, this is so long ago, some of y'all don't know what the fuck a camcorder is. And just a couple of months after the event, those four officers were acquitted. And the City of Angels just erupted. For five days, there were riots. Even Sublime wrote a song about it. April 26, 1992, there was a riot on streets, tell me where were you? At this point, American Me has been out only six weeks, and then all hell breaks loose on the same streets Edward James Olmos is trying to keep clean. 
He made a movie to stop violence in Los Angeles, but how does he deal with the most violent period the city had ever seen? I'm going to read you what he wrote about just that, though my voice is nowhere as cool as his, so just imagine Edward James almost talking to you. I was out on the morning that the military were scheduled to start to shoot to kill anyone left on the streets. That's why I went out. I wanted to see if they would shoot me with a broom in my hand. Then people saw it and turned out by the tens of thousands. The riot had not stopped. Not until the afternoon of the Friday we went out. It's funny how people think we went out after the fact. We were the fact of why the riot stopped. One person with a broom in his hands. It just happened to be me. And this is how his right-hand man, Danny Haro, explained that day. It was amazing. It was amazing. Um, you know, I remember coming, we started, I think, Eddie, myself, and maybe three other people. Five o'clock in the morning, we got brooms. Okay, this is what we're going to do. Just start screaming. All right, as, as, as it got light, people were coming. Amazing. People would come. Grab your cleaning stuff. It would the little cleaning army would would rise in numbers, and I and I specifically remember we came to an intersection where there were rioters going on, and there were the national guard and the police, and they actually stopped for us because they were about to go at it. They stopped for us, and we going across the intersection. Okay, you know, so so people like uh, I remember um, Denzel Washington later in the day coming and spoke with Eddie and, you know, I'm not saying they weren't doing their thing, but I just remember that I can't remember anybody that thought of this and 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 actually started implementing it in the middle of it. But I know that he reached out first to the African-American community, the leadership, and they were afraid. I don't blame them. Look, I was afraid too, but I thought, hey, we got, you know what, at least if we get killed, we're doing something that's honorable and we're giving back. So, okay, he's in it, I'm in it, let's go. I think it says so much about this guy. He genuinely wanted to do something good. He made what is ultimately a small but theatrical gesture. And even today, seemingly, he stands by the idea that him and a broom stop the violence. Doesn't it sound a lot like the same kind of thinking that could lead a man to believe that a movie criticizing a very dangerous gang would somehow stop children from wanting to be gangsters? I try to think of this bold claim by Olmos in the context of the Edward James Olmos that I met. Yes, I met the man years ago at a dinner for a magazine called Latino Leaders. The prize for being a Latino leader was a dinner with Olmos, which frankly sounded pretty cool to me. The discussion at dinner became a big pep talk about how to navigate a Hollywood ecosystem that doesn't include you or even understand you most of the time. But two things surprised me that night. Almost asked us what the most watched movie of all time was. Not the highest box office, but watched the most times. We shouted out things like Titanic, Star Wars, and Avatar. Wrong. He said Stand and Deliver was the most watched movie of all time because it is played to this day in every school in America. A bold statement, but you try and prove them wrong. And he asked us if he was better known for his acting or his activism. I think we thought the point he was trying to make was that he was underappreciated for his activism. So every single person in the room shouted out, acting. No, activism, he shouted back. What became clear to me was that this was a guy who saw himself first and foremost as an activist. 
and that the work he did on screen followed that guiding light. And he believes he is someone who can personally make huge changes in our society. I mean, he's the type of guy who thinks he and a broom single-handedly ended the L.A. riots. That makes it a little easier to understand why he'd go to such lengths and take such great risks in American Me. Coming up on More Than a Movie, we're going to hear some of Edward James Olmos's 60s rock band. And we'll recap what we learned about the murders. Here are some of those commercials that you love so much. I love sharing positive tips with my listeners on everything from health challenges to relationship troubles. Because life happens, baby, but you got this. Hi there, I'm Honey German, and I know we can all use some positive energy these days. That's why I make sure to empower my community, because a bit of motivation and support can go a long way. And luckily, we have State Farm to support us. Like when you talk to a State Farm agent to choose the coverage you need, and they have the options to protect the things you value most. It's the perfect positive tip you need. State Farm is also a big supporter of the My Cultura Podcast Network, where we as podcast hosts get to share our experiences and stories. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, 
a military-trained seduction spy, reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to More Than a Movie, American Me. I'm Alex Fumero. Thank you for listening with us for the last 12 weeks. That's longer than my producer's marriage lasted. Unlike him, at least you know what commitment means. Let's talk about some fun shit we found while we were reporting this story. The man, the activist, the singer? Yes, Edward James Olmos' first performances on stage were as a rock and roll frontman. Let's rewind a bit from 92 back to 62. Edward James Olmos grew up in East L.A. and taught himself to sing and play the piano. By the early 60s, he was good enough to join a band, the Pacific Ocean. The band's name was Eddie's idea because it was the biggest thing on the West Coast. With waist-long hair, Eddie was the band's lead vocalist. I was a terrible singer, says Olmos, but boy, could I scream and dance. Spreading his new dance all around town. That was a song entitled Mickey's Monkey off the 1968 album Purgatory, the band's only album. It includes such classic tunes as the bluesy Tracks of My Tears. So take a good look at my face. Take a good if you look closer, it's easy to trace. Take tracks of my tears. The seemingly James Brown-inspired I Wanna Testify. And even a funkified version of Bob Dylan's subterranean homesick blues. Look out, kid. It's something you did. God knows Why does it matter? One, because it's cool and it's a fun way to come back from commercial. Two, the guy wasn't the bassist or the keys. He was the lead singer, the front man from day one. And three, because almost is always looking to push the envelope. As we've covered before, this is white-dominated L.A. So this makes Almost, who played at legendary L.A. rock venues like Gazzari's, one of the first Chicano frontmen on the Sunset Strip. So fast forward back to 1991, and Almost has hung up his microphone and picked up a camera, figuratively speaking. He's directing the story of the gang leader who created the Mexican Mafia. And once again, he's leading the way. 
becoming one of, if not the first movie to shoot inside an active prison with real prisoners. I do remember on the yard, the big open yard, um, there were, uh, you know, people in towers with rifles. And they were, you know, they're, they're on shoot to kill orders. These are the directors of the documentary Lives in Hazard, which shot alongside American Me. If, if, if anybody had messed with us, you know, they would have been in, you know, lockdown for years. <laughs> That's, that, was, that was kind of what the guards told us. So everybody was, you know, tried to be pretty polite. Uh, suffice it to say, when Eddie asks you to do something, he's, he's pretty convincing. So he's pulling out all the stops, making a movie that's going to change society as we know it. Then the movie comes out and people start getting killed. Here's one of the actors, Danny De La Paz. We were in France um, along the Riviera at the Cannes Film Festival with American Me when uh, we heard the news of Anna's assassination, basically. And uh, I remember feeling a little bit scared. I was in a foreign country. I was far from home, and I was like, wow, what am I going to be going back home to? You know, I, it was an eye-opener for me. I, I, I didn't know what to think. On the streets of Los Angeles, word was out about the movie, and the Mexican mafia was very unhappy. Eric Galindo remembers. I mean, I had heard that, you know, when they made it, they had to get special permission from the real gangs to, to tell the story. Um, I, you know, de- definitely had heard that he was on green light, Um, you know. So green light, what it basically means is that you've been marked for death. There were so many stories about that movie. This this was happening. There's these rumors, you know, like, but all it really did for, for like my, my little group of friends was like, it just added to the authenticity. Like it was more like, that's how fucking real this is that there are real gangsters involved, that people are getting killed over this. And that's kind of the tragedy of this movie. Edward James almost wanted to make an anti-gang movie. Instead... Well, I mean, it's definitely not a movie that my parents would go watch, I mean, to be honest with you. Um, but I remember watching it with a, like a sold-out crowd. I remember there was like line out the door. It was sold out. And people loved it. You, you know? And, and, and the funny thing was... I remember walking out, you know, and people were like, oh, that's cool, man. Santana was badass. No, young Jacob Vargas, that's not what Edward James almost wanted. Even some folks in the gang life were fans, from the actor Sal Lopez. Well, uh, one of my brothers was, uh, you know, was a little bit involved in the life for a little bit of time. And uh, he, to this day, just loves that movie. (laughs) He loves the movie, you know. Shit, the former Lyman member we spoke to even said members of the Mexican mafia liked the movie, beef over the rape notwithstanding. I think they glorified and, and they wallowed in the attention. America Me actually put the Mexican mafia on the national, international stage. Coming up in the very last segment of our deep dive on American Me, what do we know now about the extortion and threats made after the movie premiered? And did people really die because of American Me? I love sharing positive tips with my listeners on everything from health challenges to relationship troubles. Because life happens, baby, but you got this. Hi there, I'm Honey German, and I know we can all use some positive energy these days. That's why I make sure to empower my community, because a bit of motivation and support 
can go a long way. And luckily, we have State Farm to support us. Like when you talk to a State Farm agent to choose the coverage you need, and they have the options to protect the things you value most. It's the perfect positive tip you need. State Farm is also a big supporter of the My Cultura podcast network, where we as podcast hosts get to share our experiences and stories. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. Woo! 
As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to More Than a Movie. I'm Alex Fumero, and this is it. Thank you for sticking with us all the way through it while we get to the bottom of what really happened in the fallout to American Me. Let's listen to one more anecdote from Olmos and the L.A. riots that illustrates an important part of his worldview. And now we're here to discuss some grimmer realities in the city of Los Angeles. Have you been out today? What have you seen? Yes, we have. Uh, yeah, you got to understand that uh, we've been uh, uh, understanding this problem for a long time. We tried for many years, and we have been for many years, trying to, to bring awareness to it. Who exactly is the we he's talking about? It's hard to say. Could be he was just with a friend or his wife or a colleague, but I don't think that's it. Could also be the royal we, but he doesn't strike me as that kind of guy either. No, for me, this is a kind of Freudian example of how almost views himself always as a part of a larger movement. It's not him ending the L.A. riots, actually. We are doing it. It's not him ending gang violence. We are. It's as if he isn't deciding to do any of the things he's doing. The movement is sort of carrying him there, like it's inevitable. And at the same time, he's clearly someone who wants to control the process. No matter how much Edward James almost thinks he's acting on behalf of a movement, he's really the one making the decisions. And decisions have consequences. You could argue that his insistence on using the word we and always acting in the interest of the community is altruistic and selfless. But it also centers him as the leader of the action. He's the lead singer. He's the man. And as such, he bears responsibility for the consequences of his actions or the actions of the people he chooses to represent. So what is Edward James almost ultimately responsible for when it comes to American Me? There's really just two elements of the fallout that we have to look at. One, did he face any personal consequences for making the movie? And two, did the people who got killed after the movie came out get killed because the movie came out? For the personal consequences part, we're really just talking about the supposed green light on Almos and the potential ransom that he paid. We've got two opposing stories to resolve, and both of the people were intimately involved in the fallout from the movie. The first is Danny Haro, who was almost his assistant at the time, and his take on whether the extortion ever took place. What's your experience of the threats and aftermath that well, came to him as a result of the I'll film? give you Eddie's response to something like that. Yeah. Do you think if, if anybody gave money, if you, you give me $150,000 and I'll leave you alone. So somebody gives $150,000, you think they're going to stop? That's... That's the simple answer, that if you say yes to any of that, it won't end. They can always go back. Well, we need another 150, and we're going to do... You see what I'm saying? So, so that's the answer right there. It's preposterous. I mean, I think that's, because, a, a, I think that's a very viable 
uh, answer. However, I think from what we've learned from uh, our source within Laeme, uh, they see themselves as a business, right? And so if I was running a business and my business revolved around me telling you, you better give me $50,000, you're going to die. And then I ask for $50,000 and then I ask for another and another and another. Probably people are going to stop paying me. But if you give me $50,000 and then I don't kill you, well, then we've completed a business transaction. Or turn that around. Give me another 50000 or I'm going to kill you. I mean, you always have that as your operating mode of operandi. You know, I have your your life in my hands. So, True. how value is fifty? Is fifty thousand, or is it more? I mean, think about it. For <clears throat> you know, I mean, that's unfortunately the way these guys operate. So, so without being specific to my answer, yeah, that's the answer. That's your answer. That gives you the 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 yeah. idea of whether there's truth in that or not. Does that make sense? It does. <laughs> but then we have our source from the last episode the former Mexican mafia member. Was there ever a bounty on Edward James Olmos as far as you know? No, no, there was not a bounty. The Mexican mafia never paid for a hit, and it doesn't pay for hits. You do a hit, it's for the honor and the glory and the privilege for killing for the organization. So, I mean, he was a target, but not really a viable target. I mean, would they have killed him if he walked into gang territory and there were shooters there? Sure, they would have killed him. But I think he was more valuable being the target of extortion. So, I mean, you have to look at it through the prism of the mob. All right. Dead guys don't pay money. And he was a valuable asset to the organization for the period that they used him. Do you know what he paid them? Yeah. 50000 Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's actually less than what we heard. But I guess 50000 30 years ago is a different story. So it wasn't a bounty in the sense that they'll pay for anyone who kills him. But... What it would have happened if almost hadn't paid? Oh, yeah. I mean, if he wouldn't have paid, he would have got whacked. We'll let you decide which story you believe. And then there's the people who were killed. We've narrowed down from Danny Trejo's vague 8 to 10, really to three individuals. Their names were Ana Lizarraga, Charlie Manriquez, and Manuel Luna. Between all the rumors around the movie and the fact that Edward James almost was maybe extorted by the Mexican mafia, some people around him believe that the movie actually caused the murders to the point that they're still afraid today that they'll get killed for talking about it. But as we know from our source from within the Mexican mafia at the time and from the federal indictment, these people were already on green light. So why, why did the street react to this movie um, more than people in prisons? Well, you know, a lot of the stuff, a lot of it was filmed in Hazard. So Smilon Gallardo, he was headstrong, and it was uh, opportunistic for him to eliminate people. They used to call Rocky Luna the godfather of the projects, right? So it was opportunistic for Gallardo to utilize, you know, what was happening in the political world of the mafia to get them whacked. You know, Charlie Brown Mariquez, we had conspired to kill him. You know, I had volunteered to kill that guy years before. He wasn't even worth killing, though, right? Ana Lazarga was known as a rat through and through the hood, you know, because she went through youth gang services and she spoke to cops all the time. So she had smut on her. Charlie Brown Mariquez that smut on him for being a bum. He was degrading the organization by living in cars and being a crackhead. And Manuel Luna became a crackhead. So, you know, they were diminishing the stature of the organization. So Smilon used this opportunity to gain a foothold in Hazard. It turns out Puppet and Little Puppet were right all along. My understanding is that she, she had a relationship with La Emma. 
prior to the movie. Obviously, yeah. she was our, our, our technical advisor, and then she ended up in the movie. But she was brought in because she knew the world. And so my understanding was that there was some kind of beef that had something to do before the, the movie. I don't really know. I don't either, but I think American Me was, you know, maybe the straw that broke the camel's back. But there was more to it than just American Me, is what you're trying to say. Like Rodney King, American Me was more the straw that broke the camel's back, not the reason itself. Lizarraga, Manriquez, and Luna would have been killed eventually for their trespasses against Laeme. So putting that on almost isn't any more fair than saying the entire L.A. riots happened over one court case. In fact, unlike the Rodney King case, American Me had almost nothing to do with why these people died. I wish I could tell Edward James almost that directly. Would it make him feel better? I don't know. I think ultimately my quest to hear from Olmos, or at the least to understand him, is really about the desire to understand the power of the artist himself. Is he right to believe that we can have that kind of impact? The kind that stops gang violence or riots through art and activism? Or is that just a messianic complex? I'm not sure what the answers to those questions are, but I have to think that 1992 was a humbling year for Edward James Olmos. What we do know is that while maybe he didn't become the Chicano Martin Scorsese, he did find a more modest, if not painstaking way to make an impact in the lives of young Latinos. I'm the uh, chairman of uh, the Youth Cinema Project. I helped found it. It was an evolutionary process that started back in 1998 and then kind of evolved. Almost turned his attention to the classroom, perhaps inspired more by Jaime Escalante than anything else. Film influences the human mind. It's a very powerful medium. The way you address diversity is by going back to the drawing board and starting in fourth grade. The mission of the Youth Cinema Project is very simple. It's about closing the achievement gap in the classroom for our most underprivileged children and to close the opportunity gap in the entertainment industry for our communities of color. Scene five, cat, take two. The program involves two filmmaking mentors going into the classroom and they teach the entire process of film. So how to generate ideas, how to write the script, all the planning and pre-production, filming itself in production as well as post. They go through the process treating the students as colleagues rather than lecturing to them. Action! Get in Don't It's inspired the community to the point of where kids are actually attending school more. I mean, I wish I would have been, had this class when I was in the fourth grade. My work would have been completely different. Our ultimate goal is to try to get the Youth Cinema Project inside every fourth grade class throughout the United States. I am the founder and the creator of the Youth Cinema Project, and I'm very honored and proud of it. More Than a Movie American Me is a production of Exile Content Studios in partnership with iHeart's My Cultura Podcast Network and Trojan Horse Media. This show is produced by me, Alex Fumero, at Angry Yuka on the Internets, and our senior producer is Nigel Duara. Rose Reed, Nando Vila, and Kareem Tapsh are our executive producers. Our supervising producer is Sabine Jansen. Mixing and sound design by Eduardo Albornoz. Our executive producers at iHeart are Giselle Bansas and Arlene Santana. For more podcasts, listen to the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.